You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Status epilepticus, what does that bring to mind? For most of us, we usually think of convulsions, but this is not always the case. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt from Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, Idaho, your host. And with me today is Dr. Rama Maganti. Dr. Maganti is an epileptologist and sleep disorder specialist at Barrows Neurological Institute in Phoenix, where he serves as medical director of both the EEG lab and the Sleep Disorder Center. Welcome to ReachMD. Well, thank you. My pleasure to be here. Tell us about non-convulsive status epilepticus, please. Non-convulsive status epilepticus basically means status epilepticus without the convulsions that you can see externally. Patients may simply be comatose, simply be unresponsive. Sometimes they may have little myoclonic jerks that you can barely see. And sometimes you may simply not see anything. And sometimes, depending upon the type of non-convulsive status, they may simply have confusion, which is prolonged and not explained on any other basis. How common is it? It's not very common. It's uncommon. It's most often seen in hospital patients, especially in the ICU, most often at the extremes of age. We very rarely encounter an outpatient presenting with status epilepticus. Usually they come in as prolonged confusion. It's much more common in people with epilepsy to present that way than for patients who don't have history of prior epilepsy. So it sounds like history is a risk factor? History of epilepsy is definitely a risk factor for non-convulsive status epilepticus. However, much more often it is seen as a result of metabolic abnormalities. Sometimes we see it in association with medications used, such as cephalosporins very commonly in the hospital. And it is also seen very commonly in the context of renal failure, hepatic failure, post-transplant in patients following traumatic brain injury, following subarachnoid hemorrhage, or any bleeding or strokes inside the brain. That's quite a list. It is quite a list. It's, as I said, it's most often seen in the hospital, so it's actually very commonly missed in the hospital where the patients have unexplained mental status changes. So if it's missed, what are people assuming their mental status changes due to? It's very often people assume that they're due to their underlying metabolic problems, such as renal failure or liver failure or an elderly woman coming in with a urinary tract infection being confused, often non-convulsive status is not diagnosed in a timely fashion because it's often attributed, the mental status changes are attributed to some other underlying cause. Now, when should we start thinking about non-convulsive status as even an option? You know, I have to say it's not even on my list usually. In a patient with known epilepsy, it's the obvious. If a patient with known epilepsy has unexplained mental status changes, you have to think of non-convulsive status. For example, a patient with partial epilepsy comes in with prolonged confusion, say lasting minutes, hours, and they come to the hospital and the confusion is not being cleared. You have to think of non-convulsive status. In a patient in the hospital, you would have to think of non-convulsive status when they have extreme mental status changes that are not explained by simply based on the underlying metabolic abnormality. It also has to be suspected in patients who have mental status changes in association with subtle myoclonic jerks, subtle tremors, eye twitching, facial twitching, you know, body part twitching in association with mental status changes is when you suspect it. And how do you diagnose it? Best diagnosed on an EEG. So if somebody has an unexplained mental status changes, the physician should first think of obtaining an EEG. 
in order to see what it is due to. Now, in patients, in specialized situations, for example, if it's a patient with traumatic brain injury or a subarachnoid hemorrhage and has mental status changes, a simple EEG may not explain it. They may need what is called as prolonged EEG monitoring or continuous EEG monitoring, where sometimes we see patients, whether it be with subarachnoid hemorrhage or with metabolic abnormalities, the non-convulsive status sort of waxes and wanes through the day meaning they go into it and out of it and into it and out of it. So a spot EEG sometimes may miss it, and sometimes you need continuous EEG monitoring to diagnose this. And continuing for how long? 24 hours, 48 hours. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is epileptologist Dr. Rama Maganti from Barrows Neurological Institute in Phoenix. We are discussing non-convulsive status epilepticus. Anything in children that would make you think a bit differently? Well, non-convulsive status is equally common in very young children, especially those under the age of three or four. Again, in those children, it's much more common in those who have pre-existing epilepsy to present with non-convulsive status. Having said that, the risk factors for children are kidney failure, post-transplant, or after they had some sort of immunosuppressive therapy, non-convulsive status is very common. The presentation is pretty much the same. It's unexplained mental status changes, sometimes associated with or without the subtle myoclonic jerks that you would see. Now, how aggressively should non-convulsive status be treated? I think the key lies in rapidly obtaining the diagnosis. The sooner you obtain the diagnosis, the easier and better it is to treat. Now, having said that, the treatment outcomes depend upon the age group. If in the very elderly patients, when they have non-convulsive status and they're treated with either benzodiazepines initially or phosphonitoin or barbiturates, their mortality rates are higher in the elderly. Now, the reason the mortality rates can be high is because the treatment itself is associated with some morbidity. You know, if somebody is on barbiturate coma or receives a large amount of barbiturates for non-convulsive status, they are going to have further deterioration in their mental status changes initially. And sometimes they get aspiration pneumonias or they need to be intubated or what have you, and the mortality rates are higher. So therefore, it needs to be treated aggressively. If you don't treat it aggressively, the outcome is going to be poor, but having said that, the treatment itself, one should be aware that treatment itself can be associated with some morbidity, especially in the elderly. Is it the same treatment strategy for children as in the elderly? Absolutely, it is the same treatment strategy. There's no difference. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is epileptologist Dr. Rama Maganti from Barrows Neurological Institute in Phoenix. We are discussing non-convulsive status epilepticus. Dr. Maganti, what further research is needed in this condition? The main research that's needed is with regards to its treatment and precisely answering the question of how aggressive we should be and in which population. The reason being the treatment associated morbidity and mortality itself. Now, the treatment paradigms that we know or that we use at this point are the same for patients with status epilepticus. We start with benzodiazepines such as lorazepam, and then patients are administered often phosphonatoin, 
and sometimes barbiturates or phenobarbital. And if those don't stop the non-convulsive status, then they, we move on to more serious medications such as propofol, midazolam, and finally onto barbiturate coma with pentobarbital. However, we don't know what order to follow in patients with non-convulsive status epilepticus. We have studies in patients with convulsive status epilepticus as to what drugs work best initially for those patients, but we don't have any such information for patients with non-convulsive status. Secondly, research is also needed on the long-term outcomes of non-convulsive status. We don't know what happens to these patients later on. If they don't have any prior history of epilepsy, do they ever develop epilepsy just because of the fact that they had status epilepticus? What is the cognitive outcome going to be for these patients? We don't have research in this area, and that's where more research is needed in order for us to know how best to treat these patients. So back in the hospital now, we have a patient with altered mental status. At what point do you think it's advisable to call in a neurologist? If there is a patient with mental status changes and if you have a readily available cause, there's, I'm not sure I would call a neurologist. However, if you don't have a reason as to explain why the patient has mental status changes, that's definitely a patient who needs a neurological evaluation. But as you said earlier, where I think it gets tricky for us non-neurologists is many of these patients seemingly do have a reason, such as their metabolic abnormalities. So wouldn't you just presume somebody who's on peritoneal dialysis for their end-stage renal disease, if they have a change in mental status, isn't it just because their renal function's out of whack? That is true. I guess when do you draw the line or where do you draw the line? I guess it does get tricky, but in a patient who has prolonged mental status or if this is persistent, for example, if a patient is on dialysis and prior to the dialysis, if they have mental status changes, following dialysis, it should improve because their uremia improves. So that's a patient I would expect to improve, and if that patient readily did not improve, I would definitely obtain a neurological evaluation. Now, it's very common for patients with renal failure to when they have mental status changes to have subtle myoclonic jerks. And those are the patients I would strongly suspect status epilepticus. Mm-hmm. And I would readily call the neurologist for those patients. Myoclonic jerks, a definite red flag. Absolutely, they are. Okay. It sounds like that history of seizures, obviously, that's another big one. Any other big red flags for us? We are noticing that in the hospitalized patients, cephalosporins are used very rampantly. And we're beginning to find that cephalosporins, they can trigger seizures. And the particular cephalosporins that are very commonly used, cefepime, to name the one, is very often associated with mental status changes, particularly in patients with renal failure, and even in the absence of renal failure in elderly patients. So medication-induced status non-convulsive status epileptis is common, and it's often overlooked. Do we know the mechanism why cephalosporins do that? Cephalosporins actually cross the blood-brain barrier, and they actually block GABA-A receptors in the brain. Penicillins do that, too. So, well, that's interesting. If they block GABA-A, you would almost assume that they would be likely to cause people to be more awake, cause insomnia, maybe cause anxiety? Very often, they block the cephalosporins are short-lived drugs. They don't last in your body too long. So they quickly go and block the GABA receptors, but they do so reversibly. So once the drug is metabolized, the GABA receptors open back up. So the way patients present with cephalosporin-induced neurotoxicity is with mental status changes, simple confusion. Sometimes they can actually have frank seizures, 
and sometimes they have mental status changes in association with subtle myoclonic jerks. So there's a range of ways they can present with, but usually these are reversible because once the drug is metabolized, the receptors open up again and they complete the results. Well, I learned much today. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. We've been discussing non-convulsive status epilepticus with our guest today, Dr. Rama Maganti from the Barrows Neurological Institute in Phoenix. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Lund. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our on-demand and podcast features allow you to access our entire program library from your computer. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Sarah DeFranti with Children's Hospital in Boston, and you are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.